James chapter 2, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if you remember, when we left off last week, we were in this, the beginning of breaking down verses 2 and following, about how we're to count it joy when we face trials. And we began to look at God's purposes in our trials. And last week, we only really got to look at the first one, that trials confirm our faith. As you know, Jesus talked about the seed that fell on the rocky soil and sprung up and sure looked like salvation. But when trouble came, because there was not real salvation and it had no root, it withered. And so in the same way, one of the ways that God confirms our salvation is how when we go through trials, we don't go away because we know there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they get saved, they think, oh man, life's going to be yellow brick road all the way to heaven now. And Jesus actually said, no, you're actually signing up for a rough road. If the world hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight and how Jesus went through suffering in his life. And the Bible says we are to be living as he did. And God's going to have him go through very similar things in our lives. And we'll look at some of those purposes later. But one of the things that confirms our salvation is the fact that when the trouble does come into our life, we stay believing in Jesus. We stay solidified. And actually, it confirms our faith because we would have opportunity to go away, but we don't. I love the fact that in John chapter 6, Jesus said to many of his disciples, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And it says that around verse 60, upon hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples left him. They went away and they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? And they left. Jesus now turns to the 12 and he says, are you all going to go away as well? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Now, did they understand the words of Jesus? No. But even though they didn't understand his words and they didn't understand what he was doing, their faith was real. Oh, in time, Judas will be proven not to be. He's going to be not just the rocky soil conversion. Judas is going to be one of those thorny soil conversions where it springs up, sure looks like salvation, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it. And it had no real root, and so he went away as well. Judas is an example of that type of a soil. If you study Judas's life and you look at him, he really kind of believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But he thought Jesus was going to be a Messiah that sets up his kingdom here on the earth now. And as they got closer and closer to the cross, he started to realize um, he's not becoming the kind of Jesus I wanted him to be. The Messiah I was looking for. He didn't do in my life what I wanted, and... The Bible tells us that he was actually stealing from the treasury as the treasurer. Why? Because he had a love for this world and for money. And that's why he sold Jesus for so many pieces of silver in order to get money when he turned away and walked away. But the fact that in the midst of this world that is trying to pull us from Jesus, in the midst of this world in which we're going to suffer tribulation, the fact that we stay 
and continue confirms our faith. That's one of the reasons why God has us suffer trials. But there's others, and we just saw here as well, that we're to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness or patience, endurance. Let me take you real quick to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 16 and 17. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Keep reading. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the what? Steadfastness of Christ. We've just seen at the end of chapter 2, it's God who works in us. It's God who produces this. And he says, I'm praying that God will produce and drive your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Folks, you want to become more patient. You want to become more steadfast in, your, in your, your, what you're going through. Go closer to Jesus. Don't try to have a stiff upper lip. Don't try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, you go and you spend time with Jesus and say, Jesus, you've been here. You've done this. You've experienced it even more than I can imagine. I need you. And he will give you what his purposes are in giving you the trials. Now, we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Go to 1 Peter. Sorry, not 1 Peter. James chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. My brain's going 100 miles an hour tonight. And I'm getting ahead of myself. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the real judge is at, standing at the door. Now, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you think back in your minds to, to uh, Job's situation and all that he went through, and the trials that he went through, and we would think that the first trial was enough, losing all his family and all of his possessions. And then the second trial came right on top of that, where he lost his health, and his wife was just nagging at him to just curse God and die. And then we don't realize it, but a third trial happened, and that's when his friends who had been there to comfort him all start taking turns attacking him and saying, this is happening because you're a sinner. God's punishing you for stuff you've done when Job knew that wasn't the case. And they went on for chapters. He didn't have it easy. But God had a purpose. And he said, also, think about the prophets. I don't know how many of you have ever looked at and studied the book of Isaiah or studied the book of, of uh, Jeremiah or Ezekiel and these prophets who would stand in front of the people of Israel and the nation of Israel and say, 
God is holy and you're not. You need to get right. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. They would beat him up. Isaiah was actually sawn in two from what we understand from, from scripture and, and from tradition from the early church. They just killed him. They rejected everything he said. But he was faithful. Oh, Jeremiah even thought about quitting. He had it rough. Actually, he got so tired of going out and giving his messages from God and getting beat up that he actually had his guy that would write them down. He said, just go out and read it. I'm tired of going out there and getting beat up. Just here it is. Here's the word from God. Just go out there and read it. But at the same time, if you look at Jeremiah's writings, he says, I, I, I want to quit, but I can't. Your words are fire in my bones. I have to keep preaching it. Why? Because God was producing a steadfastness in him. A long-suffering. Long-suffering. Some of your translations talk about long-suffering. And that's a patience in the midst of what? Trouble. Suffering. It's one thing to be patient when things are just not happening as fast as you like. There's also suffering and being patient in the midst of the suffering. You know, there are times that we ask God to take this pain away and he says no. Did Paul not experience that as well? We don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, his messenger from Satan, but he said it was sent to torment him. Doesn't sound like that was easy. Yet God says, my grace is sufficient and my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. So Paul said, I'll just embrace my weakness because I want his power on my life. Folks, God's purposes in suffering is to not only prove our salvation, but to produce perseverance, steadfastness, an attitude that actually says, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. The Hebrew writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who uh, so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of what? Endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, who have proven not to be really saved, who are the rocky and thorny soil conversions. But we're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The trials not only confirm our faith, the trials produce in us what God is wanting to produce, which is a strong faith that can withstand the trials. Now, are we able to withstand the trials because we're strong? No, we're able to withstand the, the trials because he's strong. But I'm, um, again getting ahead of myself just a little bit. You know, Galatians 9 talks about, uh, chapter six, Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10 talks about, don't be weary in what? Doing good. In, for in due time, we will reap if we don't give up. You know, right now, Satan is attacking in this area a lot. Have you noticed how many people are committing suicide? Has anybody paid attention at all to the fact that it's a rampant 
situation that's happening across the globe. There's despair that's going on. There's depression. There's anxiety. And it's amped up in these days. And by the way, it's going to get worse, especially as more demon activity is going to be released on the earth, as the Bible said, and all that. It's going to get worse. Folks, you have need of endurance. You have need of the next purpose of God's, suffer, uh, God's trials and suffering in our life. One is to, to confirm our faith. Another is to produce this endurance. But a third reason is what I've been touching on already. It's to drive us closer to Jesus. The trials actually are also designed to make you go to him. I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again been a while since I have. If you want to go on a walk with your kid and you want your kid to hold your hand and enjoy your company and you give them two choices and one path has got ice cream trucks and playgrounds and all sorts of stuff there on each side of the play of that walking path and the other one is got barking dogs. They're on a leash but they're vicious dogs on chains. They can't reach the path but they're going to be on each side. And your desire is that your child, in this instance, walk with you and enjoy your company. You're probably going to choose the path with the barking dogs because you know that's going to make the kid go and hang right on to your leg. You know what I'm saying? It was pretty interesting. Years and years ago when I was in seminary, me and some buddies made our own little business where we would do painting and remodeling and whatever. And one day we were hired to work at a hospital. It was actually a neonatal pregnancy kind of a place, and we were to paint there. And we were on a break, and we wanted to get outside because we were working with oil-based paint, and we just needed to get some fresh air. And so we just went outside, and we sat on each side of the entrance into this place. On, there was like brick half walls, and we just kind of, two on this one, two on that one. The four of us just sat there eating the sandwich, and having a, a soda or whatever to take a break. And many a mom would come in and walk with their little kids. And I have to be honest with you, we didn't look too good. Now, we were seminary students. You would have never known by looking at us because when I used to paint, I wear my worst clothes because I'm going to get them covered in paint. And so we all did. And if you knew we were going to be painting for a couple of days and not going to seminary class, you wouldn't shave. So there we were sitting there looking like the dregs of society and you would be amazed at how many kids would be just hanging on to mama's leg as they walked through us to get into that place. And it got me thinking about God says, I sometimes allow you to go through some things that are scary to make you come closer to me. Years ago when I was pastor of a church in Chicago, God had done a big work in my life to break me and to humble me. And I went from a church of about 2,000 to a church of 50. I went from where I was one of eight pastors on staff to where I was the only pastor on staff. And now I'm there with my wife, and Nicole was only one, one year old at the time. And within six months of my being there at the church, word got to me in my office that there was a deacon in the church who has, had called a private meeting in his living room of some of the powerful people in the church, and they had decided that they were going to run me off. When I got word that they were going to run me off, you have to realize I'm barely, I had just turned 30 years old. This is my first pastorate. I was scared to death, and when I heard that they were going to run me off, I started to cry. I did. I sat in my office, and I cried. 
and I got on my knees, and I don't do that very much. My knees don't like getting on my knees. But I got on my knees, and I said, God, I did what you told me to do. I went where you told me to go. I've gone from the big church down to this little church in, in Chicago, and I walked in obedience to you, but now this guy's going to run me off. He said, it's the best thing ever happened to you. I said, how? He goes, look what it made you do. It made you come to me. Then he said something that made me kind of laugh. He said, and don't pray that he dies. Because even if he does die, I'm going to have people just like him everywhere you go. And I have. Oh, by the way, God's so awesome, though. That man and his wife have been in our house here in Florida twice. They've become best friends. God did a work. But at the time, it drove me to Jesus. Go to John chapter 16. Listen to what Jesus says. Very familiar passage, but maybe you've never looked at it from this angle. John 16, look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now don't miss this. A very familiar passage, and many of us have missed what Jesus was saying. First off, as he was going through trial, and everybody was going to desert him, he said, I'm fine. Why? Because I'm, I'm in communication with the Father. If you notice, the closer Jesus got to the cross, the more he prayed. But then he said this. He said, oh, in the world, you're going to have tribulation as well. But take heart. I've overcome the world, and in me... Is peace. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to have trouble too, but just like it's had me spend my time intimately with the Father, it hopefully will have you have the same effect with me. You want peace? You don't try to fix your situation. You don't try to get enough people to change it. You come to me. In me, you will have peace. Look at John 14. Look at verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give you as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, let, neither let them be afraid. What kind of peace and whose peace does he want to give us? His peace. And as you're going to see in just a little bit, his peace comes from the fact that he's been where we are. And he knows what we're going through. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says this. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Seeking someone to devour, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you see what he said? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt, it, exalt you, casting all your anxieties where? On him, because he cares for you. Realize that you're in a battle. Realize that you have an enemy. Realize that you don't fight against flesh and blood. Realize that this is going to happen on a daily basis in some shape or form. But it's been caused or allowed or orchestrated even at times to make you rely on him. Oh, and that steadfastness, that's going to be produced by him as you learn how to rely on him. And you're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger through the trials. Now, Jesus himself went through and was shaped by suffering in this life as well. We've talked about that, but I want you to see that he's done it for us. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by who? Is that a small s or a capital S? Capital S. So which spirit is this? It's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. By the way, you remember, Jesus knew he was God, correct? He knew this. He's always been God. He just didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took the role of a servant. Yet in his flesh, he also knew that he was God. You understand? He knew that he had authority. He knew that he had power. He knew that he was the one who said, I, I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. No, none of this stuff happens to me out of my control. I either allow it to happen or I don't. And in his flesh... Satan was able to tempt him and say, if you are the son of God. Do you think Satan knew he was the son of God? I think, yeah, we know that one. But he was saying, you want to you wanna prove that you're the son of God? Just start doing things in your own power. You could command these stones to become bread, and they, they will be, because Jesus could. He's the one who can take five little loaves and two fish and have it feed over 5,000 people and have there be 12 basketfuls left over. He has authority to just make quail come out of the sky and manna on the ground and he could just do it. And Satan was saying, you don't have to wait until the father says you can exercise his authority. 
You can exercise your own authority now. Oh, and by the way, don't we have a bunch of Christians running around like that today? I'm a child of God. I, 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 I command this. Oh, the Bible says, be careful. We have authority, but we're only to use it when Jesus says use it in his power. We don't get to call the shots on when we command things to happen. Then Satan comes in and says, hey, you don't have to go to the cross to have people believe in you. All you can do is just, well, here's the scripture. Psalm 91 says that if you just throw yourself down, angels will. He took that passage totally out of context and twisted it. But he was saying to him, just do this big miracle and they'll all believe. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to wait until the Father's plan and purpose is accomplished. And he also said, um, you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Listen closely. Doesn't it say in a couple of paces in scripture that God says, test me in this? He does, doesn't he say in the book of Malachi, test me, see if I won't open the windows of heaven and give you more than you can handle? The, here's what it means. It means this. You are only allowed to test God in the areas he has said test him. You don't get to determine the test. That's why when Gideon says, hey, um, could you make the fleece dry or the fleece wet and all that? He humbly was saying, if this is okay, and God says, I permit you to do this, then he could... Put God to the test, if you will, to see if it really was him. But once you say, Lord, you have to do this. No, you don't, you don't put God to the test. You let God determine the test. But if he says, test me, test him. If he determines the test. And of course, Satan says, you want to have all the kingdoms of the world be given to you and everybody bow down to you. All you got to do is this one simple thing. I've been given all authority right now on the earth. I'm the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Um, it's my kingdom right now. I'll tell you what, just bow down to me and you'll I'll give it all to you. Oh, by the way, even if Satan did give it all to him, which he wouldn't because he's a liar and the father of lies, Jesus could not have been given all authority in the kingdoms of this world. Why? Because he would have, he would have worshipped someone besides God. And he would have been no longer be been God. He would have been no longer the sacrifice for sin. You understand what I'm saying? Everything would have been ruined. Satan knew that. But what he was really saying was, you don't have to go to the cross to have everybody be reconciled to you. And isn't that what Jesus prayed in the garden as he was tempted again? Father, if there's any other way we can do this, if you can remove this cup from me, I'm for it. Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So folks, listen closely. Was Jesus tempted by the devil? Yes. Yes, he was. Who led him into the wilderness to be tempted and tested? Yes, if you go back in your minds to Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says through Moses to the nation of Israel, remember all these 40 years how the Lord your God led you into the wilderness. He made you hungry. He made you thirsty. And he did it for three reasons. One, to humble you and to remind you of your dependence on him. Two, to test you to see whether it was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. And three, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God says, I orchestrated this time of testing in the wilderness to remind you of your dependence on me, to show where your heart really was, and also to teach you that you need to rely on me in everything, in my power and my provision. Jesus went through the same thing that the nation of Israel went to in the wilderness. Oh, he stayed humble and dependent on the Father. 
that he passed the test. By the way, the nation of Israel didn't pass that test. Whether or not they keep his commandments or not. And he also, while he was in the flesh, only did what the Father said to do. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 5. This gets even crazier. Hebrews chapter 5. And I have to be honest with you, there's elements and depths of what I'm about to read to you that I don't fully understand. But the Bible says it, so I believe it. Hebrews 5, look at verses 7 through 9. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let that sink in for a minute. In the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of what? Because of his reverence. If he had prayed, God, let's come up with a different plan. I ain't sit, give him leaving this garden until we come up with a different plan. He would not have been heard because he wouldn't have been reverenced. Haven't we been taught in the, how to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, as we've been taught to pray, and we can even pray, give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and all these things. But it starts with an attitude that says, you're God and I'm not. You're in control and I'm not. I want your will, not mine. Now I have a will. And I want to acknowledge what it is, but now I will be willing to lay it down. And with that type of an attitude, that type of a prayer, God is pleased. But he learned what? Learned obedience through what he suffered. And then having become perfect, he was able to be the sacrifice for our sins. Hang on for a second. I thought Jesus was already perfect. He is and he was, but that word perfect also means complete. And he had to become like his brothers in every respect so that he'd become the merciful high priest. Well, I'm just quoting from Hebrews 2. Go to Hebrews 2. And so Jesus, who has always been God, learned obedience through his suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Go ahead. Jim, back when... In five, mm -hmm. five it, that started out in seven, in the days of his flesh. Yes. So isn't that, doesn't that help us get some... It, well, in answer to your question, does it help us grasp it a little bit more? In the days of his flesh, yes, because when he took on human form, he took a role and to become human. And he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was, he still, the word perfect though means need to be made complete. In other words... In order for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, he not only had to come and live without sin, 
he also had to be made like his brothers in every way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Which means in the flesh. If we then, and this is where we're going next, this might answer what you're talking about. If we who are, are going through suffering, Jesus had to become like us in every way. Therefore, Jesus had to go through suffering. But actually, he's done that so that he can become a merciful high priest for us. And he understands, folks, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I know the answer. Would you not agree that sometimes life is hard? Would you not agree that sometimes you get weary of the struggle? Would you not agree that you sometimes need angels to come and minister to you? Would you not agree? And by the way, sometimes God uses each of us to be those type of angels to bring comfort to each other and to minister to each other. But listen, Jesus knows. He's been there. He's been there. And I have a hard time finding in Scripture where Jesus didn't go through something just about exactly like anything you can imagine. I made that statement one time, and this guy came up after me. He never, he, never he never lost his mother. His mother didn't die. I'm like, hang on for a second. He did lose his father. He lost a parent. Most likely, very clearly from Scripture, what we can see, Joseph died. He lost a parent. Had to become the, the one in charge, if you will, of the house for a season. The oldest son he went through homelessness. He went through rejection. He had friends turn on him. He went through physical, emotional suffering. He was considered demon-possessed and out of his mind, not only by uh, the, the Pharisees, but also by his own family. I, I don't want to go into it too much, but I have a hard time finding something we go through that Jesus didn't understand. Well, he never had a broken bone like I had a broken bone. That's true. But I think he went through a little bit more physical suffering than your broken bone. You understand? We can't take this to the nth detail, but you'd be hard-pressed to have Jesus say, you know, never, never been through, I don't understand that. Haven't been through that. Go ahead. What about all this stuff that a woman goes through? And you're talking about female stuff? Again, this is where I think we, try, we get ourselves in trouble trying to break down every little minute detail. But do you think Jesus understood physical pain and suffering? So why are we going to break it down into, well, it's female physical. You see what I'm saying? I'm not trying to break it down into that type of a thing, but that's a physical pain. It's a physical suffering. Jesus understands that. You know, I think that's kind of why I'm glad we don't have, we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Because then we try to write it off. No, put yours in there. Go ahead. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, Jesus had, he had carnal feelings, but he never gave in to them. He experienced everything we do. He was tempted in every way, the Bible says, yet without sin. Now, I'll be honest with you, folks. I'm tempted in a lot of ways. But there's some that you'll never tempt me with. The Bible says he was tempted in every way. And I'm going to just leave it at that. Yet without sin. But he's able to understand because he's been there. He's taken on form. And folks, I'll be honest with you. I don't think we even, we have trouble, we want out of these bodies, don't we? Aren't we ready to go get our heavenly body? Aren't we ready to go be with the Lord? But Jesus, he was God and took on human form. You want to talk about the feeling of cramped. You want to talk about wanting to get out of this body. I'm sure that mind of transfiguration felt pretty good for just a few hours or however long it was. But here's the whole point. Jesus went through it for us. So that we could go 
and be with him, yet at the same time, he also understands. So when you go to him, he knows. He created you. And on top of that, back to your question, uh, Sherry, he made the female body. He knows. He's the one who actually said that there's going to be increased pain in childbirth because of sin. I think he knows. Now, if Jesus, though, had to experience suffering in this life to fulfill God's purposes for him, so too will we. We know in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, when God tells Ananias, yes, go lay hands on this guy, Paul, actually Saul at the time, and heal him of his blindness, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verses 10, and 10 through 12. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, you, however, have followed my teaching. He's writing to Timothy, Paul is. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You still want to sign up? That's why Jesus said, if you're willing to follow me, you have to deny yourself, be willing to take up your cross and follow me. I did not promise you a yellow brick road on the way to heaven, even though there are a lot of preachers in big churches that will tell you that that's what the Christian life is going to look like here. That's not what Jesus said. But he said this, I'll walk you through it. And in that time, you will come to know me in ways you never, ever could without the suffering. And I will do things in you and through you that one day will be glorifying to me for eternity. But in John 21, I'm not going to for the sake of time have you go there because I want to keep moving. But in John 21, when Jesus appeared the third time to his disciples after he rose from the dead, he explains to Peter how he's going to die. And by the way, if you go to that passage, it, it describes crucifixion. When you're young, you went where you wanted and dressed your own self. But when you're old, you'll be taken where you don't want to go and they're going to stretch out your hands. And then the scripture said this, by this he showed him the kind of death that he was going to die. So when Peter, and we know from church history that when Peter was crucified in the same way as his Lord, he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as his Lord, and he actually said, crucify me upside down. Well, he had had 25 years to think about that, because it was 25 years earlier that Jesus had already told him on that walk on the beach, here's how you're going to die, you're going to be crucified. I don't think it was a rash decision that Peter made at that moment. I think he had prayed about it and was ready for that moment. Yet at the same time, if we know the story, he turns to uh, Jesus and says, what about John? How's he going to die? And Jesus says to him, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? You follow me. Yes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will go through suffering. But don't miss this. Some people will have it harder than others. And if you start comparing your level of suffering to the people around you, it is going to take your eyes off of Jesus and you're going to put them on those people and you're actually not going to be in the abiding relationship and you won't have peace and you might not have steadfastness. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, let us 
Uh, and since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin and the different things that so easily entangle and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes where? On Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Folks, suffering is a part of this life. I believe the Bible teaches we will not be here on the earth. The church won't during the great tribulation the time of trial that's going to come upon the whole world when God's wrath is poured out and the nation of Israel will be purified. But at the same time, between now and then, there's going to be it. And the Bible says that wickedness is going to increase. We should not be surprised with what's going on in the world. Christians have got to stop acting like, man, everything's going to pot. Folks, the Bible said it was going to. Things are going to go from bad to worse. It's getting closer and closer to the end times. And actually, I am excited because you know what? It's going to be a lot harder for people to fake being a Christian now. In the early church, it was hard to be a believer. If you signed up for that, you were signing up for a hard life. Not many even dared join them, the scripture says, in the early part of Acts. As we get closer to Jesus' coming to gather us, as God is purifying his bride, if it's time, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for judgment to begin with the household of faith... If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will happen to the ungodly? Folks, we're going through a time right now where God is pruning. And God is cleaning out his church. He even says to the churches in Revelation, which are a picture, not, not only literal churches that existed, but a picture of the church age. To some near the end, he says, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Then he says to the church of Laodicea, you, have, you think you're rich and have need of nothing, yet you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, all descriptions of the lost. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth at the rapture when he takes his bride, those who were lukewarm, those who were not his. That's why he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. By the way, that was written to the church. In the last days. Folks, we've got to get away from a Christianity that promises your best life now. And helps you understand that in Christ, everything you need for life and godliness is yours. But you will go through suffering. And in the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 11, some received their children back from the dead. Others escaped the edge of the sword. Others were killed with the sword. Others wandered in deserts and caves. And the world was not worthy of them, and all were commended for their faith. I don't know what your race is going to look like, but you just run the race Jesus has for you, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Don't compare your life, your bank account, your car, your marriage, whatever, your health. Don't compare it with anybody else. You just say, Lord, your purpose was to have me come closer to you and, to have, and have you understand that you know what I'm going through and accomplish your will in my life. Go to 1 Peter 4. Look at verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. It said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ... You're blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, listen closely, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Not my will, but yours be done. Sounds like a daily prayer, doesn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, my Father, because of Jesus, hallowed, revered, reverenced, holy be your name. Oh, by the way, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. And I know one day that's going to happen when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. But between now and then, the kingdom is alive in and through me. May your will be done in Jim Johnson's life as you desire it in heaven. Oh, God, I, I need daily bread. You're my sustenance. I need forgiveness. And I need to forgive the people around me because you've forgiven me. And I need you to keep that guy from messing with me, if you can. Lead me not into temptation. But if you choose for your purposes to allow him in my life to tempt and to test, just like happened to you, deliver me. My eyes are on you. Folks, unless we learn how to pray this way on a regular basis, when the trial comes, we probably won't respond the best. So I think it might do us good not to learn how to pray that when the trouble comes, but learn how to pray that on a daily basis before the trial even comes. You ever notice that? The men and women of faith in the, in the Bible, especially we see in the book of Acts, when the trial came in their life, they immediately rejoiced when they had been beaten. Why? They were mentally prepared for it, spiritually prepared for it. Paul and Silas are in prison. They were illegally arrested. They were two Roman citizens. They could have pulled out the Roman citizen card, but the Spirit said, keep it in your pocket. They were beaten. They were thrown in the inner cell in stocks, and they weren't going, why is this happening to us? We're trying to follow God, and, and I thought life was going to be better than this. And well, No, they actually were singing and praising God. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you face trials of various kinds. Why? Because God's going to do something through it. Exactly. Why not me instead of why me? Now this, this is where it gets a little crazy. I'm not saying that we should go and just say, Lord, give me trouble. That makes you God again and not him. But a prayer that says, Lord, prepare my heart for whatever you have for me. That's what I want. Do you understand the difference? Prepare my heart for whatever it is you have for me. Go to James chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 8. And by the way, this is going to go into, now all of a sudden you're going to see that this next, these next verses are tied to what we just read. We've always studied verses 5 through 8 by itself. But I think it's tied to needing wisdom in 
the trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, didn't he just say at the last verse, that the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, do you see that word? Lacking in nothing. So if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If God desires to use suffering in our lives to accomplish his purpose, then we need God's wisdom in our trials. And what is God's wisdom? His purpose. Now, I'm going to put a little caveat on that, caveat on that in just a little bit. But... There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, what is your purpose? We just read in the book of Hebrews, we've seen, oh, sorry, the book of James, we've seen the purpose of the Lord in Job's trial. Now, this is not referring to the wisdom that comes from human reasoning or figuring things out. This is referring to God's thoughts and insight in our situation. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the wisdom of man isn't the same thing as the wisdom of God. Man's wisdom is, you know, God's wisdom is foolishness to man. Well, tell you what, just go there. I want you to see what the scripture says about this type of wisdom we're talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right, jump over to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is man's wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's that humility. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit was from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, all through this whole passage, Paul keeps talking about wisdom, but not that wisdom, this wisdom. What he's saying is this. The wisdom that God wants to get us, give us, and if you're lacking that kind of wisdom, is not a human type of wisdom. It's a spiritual wisdom where God gives you insight to see things as he does. And if we're honest, we need that. Because as we look at this world, stuff doesn't make sense. Yet God says everything's right on schedule and I want you to trust me. But he will give us wisdom in the situation, but he's designed it that we have to do what to get it? Ask. He doesn't say just be patient and you'll get it. He says you have to be patient, but you also have to ask. Without doubting, which we won't get into tonight. We won't have time to get that far tonight. But we'll do that in two weeks when we come back together. But listen to what I want you to hear. God says, I have purposes and I have plans for why I have allowed, orchestrated, whatever term you want to use to have you go through what you're going through. I have my reasons and I will give you wisdom. But you have to be patient and you have to ask. Now, Go to Romans chapter 8. I know we haven't studied Romans in a while, so it'll be good for us to go back there. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 27. You're going to see it jump off the page here. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we who ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We talked about that earlier tonight. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Now, likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Don't miss this. We're going through suffering right now. Paul says, I've had a chance to see what's to come. What we're going through doesn't even compare with what is to happen. And creation's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And those of us who have the spirit of God within us, we groan inwardly waiting for the adoption of, of, of our bodies, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, we also have someone that's within us who's praying for us in accordance with the will of God. He has a purpose in the suffering. He doesn't just allow it for whatever reason or for his kicks. That's why when God allows suffering, he sets the parameters. Just like when Satan came 
Ask God, you know, God pointed out Job. He said, well, the only reason he's liking you is because you've got this protection around him. God says, I'll tell you what. Do what you want, but here are the parameters. In the same way, God had a purpose, and we have to trust it. We're going to get to, next time we get together, we don't have time to dive into it tonight. But I'm going to also show you when we get back together in a couple weeks, wisdom might not be an answer specifically to your question. Wisdom might be simply a piece that God has a reason and he's not ready to share it with you. See, a lot of us say, all right, God, I want wisdom. And I, you got to tell me. And we're saying, God, give me the answer. What's really going on? You're still telling him what to do. Good for you, Elise. Years ago, I had gone through a period of my time. I was pastor of this church. And I was going through a period in my time where I hadn't heard God speak to me in a while. Now, I was still teaching the Bible and teaching Sunday school classes and discipleship classes and preaching Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I was even had a radio program back at that time. But it was starting to eat at me. And I'd really never heard God speak to me. I, I love the voice of God. I love it when he speaks to me through his word and when he speaks to me in my prayer time. And I, I, hadn't, I hadn't sensed his presence. So finally, I decided I'm going to go out in the backyard and I'm not leaving the backyard till he answers my prayer. So I go out there. I like to go out in the backyard and look at the stars. And we live not far from the beach. And at night, you can see a lot of stars. And I said, Lord, I got to hear something. Why are you so silent? Why haven't heard you speak? Is there sin in my life? I'm doing everything. What's going on? Nothing. Finally, after about an hour or two of that, I couldn't take it anymore, and I went to bed. But I couldn't sleep. So what's the point of being in bed if you can't sleep? So I go get up, and folks, I did what I tell everybody never to do. I took my Bible, and I did this. Do you know what verse my finger came down on? It was on John chapter 19, where Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, aren't you going to speak to me? Aren't you going to say something? Don't you realize I have the power to have you released or to have you killed? And God spoke to my heart so clearly at that moment. He said, Jim, I was silent then for a reason, and I'm silent now for a reason. And you know what? Something happened in my life. Peace came over me. God said, I'm quiet, but I'm quiet for a reason, and you've got to be okay with that. And I, I said, I'm good. I needed wisdom. Why was he so silent? And his answer was simply for a reason. And that was enough. Do you understand? But there's still nothing wrong with God giving you more specifics, and he do, does sometimes. But he gets to be God. Who knows what God's purposes are? Doesn't the Bible say in the end of chapter 11, that you'll never figure him out. But then he goes into chapter 12 and says, but if you lay yourself on the altar, you'll know what his will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when we come back together in two weeks, we're going to dive into this some more. We need wisdom in these days. And wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is tied to knowledge. But knowledge by itself just puffs up. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge. We need that, don't we? Well, 
Hopefully, you'll get some between now and two weeks, but we'll see you in two weeks. I love you. Thanks for coming.